Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Ancient tools and burials. Plants and seeds. Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, episode 58. These things we make I'm your host, Sarah, with my co-host today, Jeb Card. And today we're talking about Margaret Murray, murder and witchcraft. We talk about Margaret Murray's research into witch cults and a murder that occurred in England in the 1950s. We talk a little about Margaret Murray's conclusions about the murder and some history about the area where the murder occurred. Get ready to think critically. Everyone, and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I am here today with my co-host, Jeb Card. How's it going? Well, it is cold enough that I can actually have my window open instead of the air conditioning. So that's pretty nice. Yes, the weather has uh, gotten very nice around here. It is It is starting to be very fall, which given that we are in fall, <laughs> is is entirely appropriate. But uh, uh, no, we're, we're deep in the semester. We are now at midterms. I just gave midterms on Friday and Monday. So I got to grade those in the next couple of weeks. And yeah, we're starting to get there and we're moving in. We're deep in. So well, that's yes. good. That's where you need to be in the the season. Oh, yeah. So today we are talking about someone who's fairly famous in the anthropology and archaeology circles, someone we learn about in school, who apparently had a very colorful uh, past on top of just her regular research. Yeah, uh, somebody by the name of Margaret Murray, and we'll we'll talk about, you know, who she is and all these things, but... uh, let me just put it this way. Uh, studying her, I went to a number of places, including last year. Uh, I remember sitting down on a very bright afternoon in the National Archives in uh, London, near Kew Gardens, and going through an unsolved murder file, the original documents, for an unsolved murder involving witchcraft from Scotland Yard. And that is exactly how you do vacation. And Margaret Murray... She was not mentioned in that file, which actually surprised me, which makes me almost wonder if there's another file. But she went undercover as a, let's see, that would have been uh, an 87-year-old woman, went undercover and was trying to investigate a murder allegedly involving witches. She was pretending to be a, a like a traveling artist, wasn't she? Yeah. So let's let's get back to the murder case. But that's our kind of, you know, sort of – so Margaret Murray, she was an archaeologist – and she was uh, she was a, a very professor. influential archaeologist in the early yeah. fields. So the she was she worked with with Flinders Petrie. Now we've we've mentioned Sir Sir Flinders Petrie before, and he is our he is usually considered the first scientific Egyptologist. So prior to him, there were Egyptologists, and what when we mean scientific, we don't necessarily mean like good. That's not what we mean here. But he used a number of scientific methods, and he was also very interested in our in Egypt before he did Egypt after, but Egypt before history. Like in essence, the idea that you would go to Egypt and dig up their Neolithic and their Paleolithic and their pre-dynastic and not just, you know, Ramses. Uh, he really kind of pushed that. He was the first endowed professor, as I'm aware, of Egyptology. And if I'm wrong about that, I apologize. But I, as far as I'm aware, that's the case at University College London. And uh, Margaret Murray went to University College London. I have to check where she went, but I know she ends up working there. But she was his student at one point. And uh, actually had to basically force to get her degree. She was also an activist as a suffragette and an activist for women's rights at a time when there were a lot less. You know, they would educate women and then be like, oh, ha, ha, you don't really need your degree, do you? And she very much put her foot down and helped uh, protest this and made sure that that wasn't going to be the case. 
And then she went and worked with Petrie for a number of years in Egypt and did her own works, most famously uh, working on the Osiron, this sort of temple to Osiris. It was kind of like his, his tomb, like a sort of faux tomb for Osiris. And there's a lot of interesting things there. Um, she didn't, she was not a field archaeologist for the majority of her career work. Uh, she ended up teaching a lot of Petrie's classes, which meant that she was basically training the first generation of professionals in her field. Right. Uh, and so she did all of that. And that's kind of like her, 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 her famous sort of, uh, um, pedigree. Now, the thing is though, if you look up her name, that's probably not what she's most famous for. And what she's most famous for would be what? Um, I know her for her anthropology work um, with different uh, native tribe, And by native tribes, I mean overseas native tribes. Yeah, she did, she did some of that. She, she did some ethnography like a lot of people at that time and still you know, a lot today. She did that. But if you if, – I mean let's see. Let's open up the wiki. Let's see what she talks about, what she is, folklore. She was the president of the Folklore Society. Um, very much that she was a feminist, but in many ways, the thing that she has become sort of most famous for, she writes a book in 1921 called The Witch Cult in Western Europe. And then she writes several more, The God of the Witches and, and uh, all these, where basically she becomes the biggest academic proponent of what we might call the idea of the old religion, that things that were lumped in under the title of witchcraft in Europe were not Satanists, were not, however, the kind of forced confessions of people who were being tortured, but that were instead this idea that there was an ancient religion, a very old one, that had come to be persecuted as witches. And sort of spoiler alert, but most historians today, pretty much almost all of them, generally do not including ones who are very sympathetic to various neo-pagan religions, uh, like Ronald Hutton, very much go, yeah, that's not supportable. That's not supportable. But she very much championed this idea. She was not the first person to invent it. And we can talk about that a little later. She, she kind of pushed it. And I think her status as a pioneering archaeologist really kind of gave her a lot of heft. In, in arguing this idea. And then this idea subsequently has a huge amount of influence. Uh, in essence, uh, so Gerald Gardner, and we'll talk more about him, but Gerald Gardner is often considered sort of the founder of Wicca, one of the various strands of neo-paganism. He called her the godmother of the witches and had her write the foreword to Witchcraft Today, which basically becomes the sort of the book that's the coming out party of, uh, of Wicca. Right, and and some people may know him as the the leader of the Gardenian Order, which is one of the quote unquote older orders of uh, Wicca when it was formed. Um, yeah, well, and she was very influential. Well, to the interpretation like, of modern Wicca. Exactly. So, I mean, Gerald Gardner, let, let's just tell his story right now. He also had had not training but background doing archaeology and aquarianism. Uh, he, he had worked in, uh, sort of rubber plantations in the British colonies in the East. Uh, and while there he became fascinated with quote unquote native this and, you know, like a lot of colonialists and especially ideas of magic and religion. And he, I, he very much, I think felt that these were things that were missing from kind of English society and British society. So he comes back and he goes to the new forest in Southern England this area, and he finds what he ends up calling a coven. Now, he was not the first person to do it. So I, I mentioned that Margaret Murray doesn't invent this idea. This, by the way, sort of ties into the, the crossover we recently did with Monster Talk. Um, we talked about the fairies and David MacRitchie. All of this is part of a larger generational shift. I mean, really, there were a lot of people that I think were thrown for a loop by sort of deep time. And evolution, and it wasn't they didn't believe in these things, but that these things made a lot of the, a lot of the ideas and sort of a lot of the cultural stuff that was valued, that antiquarians and and folklore, something valued. It kind of made it feel not very significant. I mean, if you're if you're studying folk traditions of the last three four hundred years, and somebody's like, oh, by the way, humans are seven million years old, or life on Earth is four point five billion years old. Everybody evolved in Africa, and they showed up here relatively recently, and it's ephemeral kind of takes the wind out of your sails. And we've, we've talked about, yeah, I mean, we've talked about this a lot, um, especially Ken and I have talked about this when it comes to dealing with um, Native American uh, mythic traditions and that kind of stuff, because 
you will often see a lot of clashing between archaeologists' interpretation of history as, you know, science tells us. And then you'll you'll get a lot of pushback from Native Americans and First Peoples who are like, no, this is our history. And you, well, you I, and I'm sure you were getting a very similar effect. You get it from everybody. Yeah. I mean, everybody, everybody pushes back. Like, I don't think it's just Native, I mean, you, know, I, I, you know, when we talk about. No, we've uh, just talked about Native Americans before. Well, and, and, and you guys talk a bit about a bit more about North America, and I think that may be why. But you talk about Europe. This is it's the same thing. Everybody, yeah. everybody yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of does this. Did you all see um, uh, there was, what was it, the, the culture minister in Iraq? Who and apparently was kind of excoriated in the Iraqi press. Who was basically buying into Zachariah Setchin style? Oh, there were totally ancient aliens and they mined gold and and all of that. And that's what Sumeria was. Right, 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 right. Yeah, no, I, I, and I think there's this, and we've talked about this when we had April B saw on this idea of sort of loss of control that somebody's coming from outside and telling you what's what, and and people don't necessarily, in fact, often don't like that. Well, and, and it removes and, yeah. that mystery from it. Mm-hmm. All of these things that we're talking about, they all have an element of mystery. The whole, well, we can never know kind of thing. And some people like that because it, the whole concept of knowledge through revelation um, is really important to a lot of cultures. And then you have scientists come in and we're like, no, it happened like this. And here is the evidence. And these are the facts. And it to those people, it takes all of the mystery away and devalues or yeah. attempt or it seems like an attempt to devalue a belief system. Yeah. Well, I think one is mystery. One is removing mystery. And then the other one is even if you don't think in mystery, if you think things are the way they are – and we've talked about myth before – the past often acts as kind of a charter myth, like the past explains the present. Right. Well, if all of a sudden you show up and you're like, well, actually the past is, well, you're related to chimpanzees and you come here and you all just randomly came here and blah, 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 blah. And all the stuff that's written down in sort of proto-history and written down in like the earliest traditions and the earliest folk traditions. And you're like, the archaeologist comes like, well, by the way, all that shit kind of jack squat doesn't really matter because science right um it, it, even if it's not mystery but that that's another thing i mean mystery can be can, is very much fun and there's the idea of discovery so you lose discovery and you lose significance and meaning so i, I think there's a lot of this and you know when you read murray a lot of we talked about david mac Ritchie with his fairies a lot of that makes its way into murray right and when you read murray she's clearly in the same vein as sir james george frazier who was considered at the time this massive anthropologist today he's not looked at as being that important but he's very influential in sort of kind of the the public idea of of myth in the past where it's sort of this oh you collect this over here and over here and you kind of create sort of this idea of like a, a unified folklore She's not really that different, and she's different in the sense that she's a, a woman as a pioneer in some of this. But the other way she's different is her stuff ends up to some degree founding a religion in one sense. And then we've talked, and you've mentioned this. We've seen to be bringing up Lovecraft a lot. And I'm like, I wonder why. <laughs> um, she's a massive influence on him. And in fact, basically, you could argue – in fact, I do argue in, in, in Spooky Archaeology or whatever the final title of the book's going to be, but that's what it's working right now. And others have argued this as well. I mean I, I didn't invent this. It's, he literally names drops her stuff. The Cthulhu cult, the entire idea of the Cthulhu mythos as sort of a hidden religion basically starts to show up in Lovecraft's writing after he reads her book. Now, can you – I know that we've kind of almost gotten there. Can you define hidden religion as Murray saw it? Right. So the way Murray describes this and, – and there are sort of, so there, – so let's, let's talk back to the, to the beginning of this concept. You have – in the 19th century, people like Jules Michelet uh, arguing that there that the witches that were described. So first off, let's do some debunking. Medieval witch trials. Yeah, that's actually not really a thing. Um, witch trials were largely in Europe a thing of what we would call the Renaissance and the early modern era. They, they really kind of come to a height in the 16th and, and into the 17th century. They don't end there either. Owen Davies, a historian, has written a lot about this and talked a lot about this. You see people being put on trial as witches into the 1700s and then you have an inversion of witch trials where people are, are either persecuting or straight out killing people they think are witches and then they go on trial. You know, and that continues into like the 1900s. This, I mean, and you could argue that it continues to today to some degree. But so you had this idea 
in the eight. So, I mean, we don't even have the concept of deep time before the 1800s. But once we have the 1800s, you've got the, the concept of, all right, well, you've got things that are older than a few thousand years. And we've talked on this show in the past, like, oh, you must have the Druids. And they often kind of get lumped in on this as sort of right. you know old religions. And so you start to have in the 1800s this notion, again, Jules Michelet is one, that things like the witch trials were, instead of, again, either being like straight up Satanists or that it was all just made up by the church and forcing people to say it, mm. that it was a legitimate sort of hidden network, like heretics, like, you know, a hidden cult. I mean, she calls it a witch cult uh, that became sort of labeled as Satanists. The, the sort of the breakthrough figure, and, you, and this, this also contributes to, you'll hear these names, for example, in, in pagan circles, is, is uh, Charles Leland. In the late 19th century, he's an, if I remember right, American folklorist, he goes to Italy, finds a woman by the name of Maddalena, who shows him Aradia, or the Gospel of the Witches, as he calls it. And it's basically sort of her book of shadows, her, her book of lore, her book of spells <laughs> and, and rituals, excuse me. And that's really the first time that you have somebody go, oh, I went and I found a living ancient witch tradition that continues as kind of folk magic today. But remember, the 19th century is – in the late 18th into the 19th century is obsessed with this idea of folklore, of like finding ancient folk traditions that will give us kind of keys to the past. That's what Fraser was doing with the Golden Bough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what uh, the Grimm brothers were doing and others. I mean that's basically the, the concept of folklore sort of is based on that. So it's the idea that there is this very old tradition. And I, I'd have to go back and reread Aradia. But if I remember correctly, Leland kind of tries to tie it into the classical era, like sort of classical paganism in that sense. Murray takes it farther. Murray's writing in the 1910s and 20s to begin with. She continues, but she develops the core concept in a series of articles. And we can talk about how she gets there after the break in a few minutes. But uh, she, she writes these in Glastonbury. She takes it a lot farther back, and she ultimately ends up arguing that this is the primal religion, that this goes all the way back to the Paleolithic, like before farming, before all of this. Now, was so, she was she operating at the same time that the, that the Theosophy societies were forming, or did they form after she had produced her work? Other way around, other way around. She is born in 1863 in Calcutta, mm -hmm. and uh, the Theosophy societies are basically becoming active around the time of her birth. So they were already kind of cutting the rug. I mean, when she's 20 years old, when she's like becoming a college student, that's when we're talking about Donnelly and Atlantis and the La Plongeons. So, and we've talked about how the theosophy groups were looking pretty much for that primal religion, too. Exactly. A lot of people were. I mean, it was this idea that, you know, if you can sort of go back and back and back, you can find a charter myth. If you can find the beginning, you find the origin. If you find the origin, you find the meaning. Right. And, and, I, and I think that she, she's not alone in this. A lot of people were. And in some senses, I think one of the reasons Murray is so famous is that she's kind of preserving this. Margaret Murray lives until 1963. She's kind of one of the last people doing sort of very late Victorian style scholarship, if you want to think of it that way. Mm -hmm. And because she's doing it relatively late, uh, it's kind of stuck. And it feels sort of old in that regard. Well, and she published uh, several books about it, though, didn't yeah, she? she? Yeah, her, her, her most famous and probably her most important and the one that was initially taken the best was The Witch Cult in Western Europe in, in 1921. She then writes The God of the Witches. And then there's a third one that I am forgetting right now. Oh, The Divine uh, – I think it's The Divine King in England, which – that's the one where she starts to lose people because uh, the concept of a divine king that is sacrificed comes straight out of Sir James George Frazier. Mm -hmm. And she ends up arguing that like a whole bunch of like the British royals were all – or their friends were all – or their courtiers were sacrifices and that in essence that the British royals continued to be the witch cult to the present. And that starts to get like into David Icke territory. And unfortunately, you do start to see in her – her later years, it gets kind of conspiracy. -y. Was she so she was arguing that whenever a royal died unexpectedly, that that wasn't 
whatever she, we thought it was historically, it was actually a pagan sacrifice or the continuance of a pagan sacrifice? Not whenever, but she was finding like ones that made sense to her that that was the case. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, yeah. that does sound a little. The little David Icke. Yeah. A little, little conspiracy theory. But and, to be and, fair, she made it to a hundred. So. Well, yeah. And that's the thing is early on, she didn't make these sounds. And then as, as she kind of went further, she started to, and, and the murder trial that we're kind of using as our hook and our sort of our, our, our continuing hook, uh, by that time, she clearly was like early on, she argues the witch cult must have been wiped out during the Renaissance or during the early modern period, like by, by like, say, the seven, by the 1600s. Clearly later in her life, she started to change in that regard. Right. Well, let's go to break real quick. And when we come back, maybe we will start poking our noses into this murder mystery. <laughs> Women in Archaeology is a show about archaeology by the women of archaeology. An alternating panel of women archaeologists discuss the issues in archaeology that impact professionals and the public every day. Check out Women in Archaeology for a different perspective on the past today at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash WIA. Now let's get back to the show. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we are back and we are still talking about Margaret Murray. And she did something very interesting, I think, as an anthropologist. She went undercover to investigate a very suspicious looking murder. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and saying undercover, I say it. But I, I do wonder if I'm kind of sensationalizing a little. But since this murder was massively sensationalized, I don't massively. think you're. I don't think you are sensationalizing it too much. It's not like she was. I mean, she was eventually asked to weigh in on this topic. But oh yeah, she totally did. But she wasn't like doing it for the police. So, right, 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 right. She she did she did the whole dressing up and pretending to be an art tourist on yeah. her own. So remember, this is a woman that's born in 1863. So in 1950, she is um, how old? Um, please help me do the math. Uh, I so, have the wrong person to ask for that. Not, well, 90 years later, she 90 years later would be 1950. So she's 87. I think I said that earlier. All right, so she's 87 years old. So in 1945, and that's 1950. I know, I know. Wait for it. In 1945, a old, uh, not a farmer in the sense of olding a farm, but a farm worker by the name of Charles Walton is stabbed to death. He, uh, he is, he, this is in a place called Lower Quinton. And if I'm mispronouncing that, I apologize outside of Birmingham. It's and British I wanted, though, so. Yeah. And I want to get up to Birmingham. I did not get a chance last year. I did do some research on this, but I didn't get up to Birmingham. That might change in the future. But, uh, in 1945, he is found stabbed to death in, in, in February. Um, his throat has been slit. I think it's with the bill hook. And then a pitchfork is literally pinning him to the ground, like basically through like more or less where his chest meets his neck. Well, and wasn't there evidence that he'd basically been beaten with his own cane as well? That may be. I'd have to go back. I did actually take pictures. So I did actually look through the Scotland Yard murder files on this. And they I mean, I have like photos, like personal photos of like the, the autopsy report and and all of that. I'd have to I'd have to double check that. He was probably beaten. There were some defensive wounds, if I remember correctly. He was his money was taken. He had a money belt, and that was apparently known, and that was often considered part of the motive. So Scotland Yard is, is is the Metropolitan Police, and they're based in London, but they're not the city of London police. And they have their territory in the London area to a point. But also at one – eventually they got the power that their detectives would be sent out to help with major crimes, especially things like murder. So they send out Robert Fabian, 
he's actually their sort of chief inspector and he's near retirement. He retires not long after this. It's actually sort of his last case. This is very much like a movie. This is why several books have been uh, written about this. Uh, and uh, he goes up there and he can't solve it. Now, they long thought that it was probably his employer, like a guy who did own the farm he's found on. Uh, and there was a lot of sort of concern that, you know, they, they figured it was him, but they just, they just couldn't prove it. Uh, and, and this annoyed Fabian. Now, Fabian, he was the most famous kind of like law enforcement of his day. Uh, he was called Fabian of the Yard, and he actually became a TV star. They made a T. He wrote a number of books that became increasingly sensational. And this gets part of our story. And he also they, – they made a TV show called like basically Fabian in the Yard where he would retell and recount some of his more famous cases that he was involved with. Like he helped with a, a major bombing case and other cases, but, you know, other ones as well. Things to look up on the internet. He did all these sorts of things. And, but he couldn't solve this case and it really frustrated him. Now, in 1945 – they thought that it was likely his employer, but they did go also uh, question a whole bunch of Italian POWs that were held in a nearby camp. The POWs, they were sort of, you know, they were allowed out to do work and stuff. I mean, remember, Italy had switched sides by this point. This World War II is nearly over. Well, and so, the Allies were not as rough on their POWs yeah. as the Axis powers were. Exactly. So when I, I looked at this, right. yeah, no, that's yeah. And when I went, when I looked in the Scotland Yard files, there were um, massive numbers, like basically every uh, interview with an Italian POW. There were just like pages upon pages upon pages. But so that was where it sat in 1945. But five years later, in 1950, and this is actually kind of a fascinating thing that I didn't quite understand until I started doing this research. Five years later, in 1950, the case gets resurrected, and I think partly because you know Fabian was talking about it, and and to bring in the archaeology, he, for example, ties it into the roll the Rollwright Stones, a standing stone site, and which eventually gets tied to the case. The problem is they're nowhere near. The murder site. They're, they're a number of miles away. Yeah, I but, thought that was interesting that they were tying those in. But I think that makes perfect sense. They're, they're, it's archaeology. It's mystery and, and all of these things we've been talking about. Well, and the stones and, themselves are tied to witchcraft. Yeah, well, I mean, find, well, find, yeah, a, find a standing stone there that's not. That, that's, that's, and I think that's kind of the point. Right. I think that's kind of the point. So um, they – in 1950, I think the thing that kicks this off, and this is in the the case files. If you go in the case files, there's a woman by the name who's 80 years old in 1950 by the name of Agnes Pullinger, and they bring her in because she remembers, and others remember this as well, but they interview her, that her grandmother, uh, Ann Tennant, I believe, was – she was murdered decades earlier in 1875 and she was stabbed to death by somebody with a pitchfork like just literally came up and she was walking around it's like oh i'm now going to stab you to death with a pitchfork and he did well, the and, story is, is that she was walking home yeah with a loaf of bread because that was very important and uh yeah this guy apparently she walked past now she was like in her 70s when this happened yes uh, and she walked by the gentleman and he just started stabbing her with his pitchfork and right. the, no one the, really in, knows in the torso. Why. Yeah. Well, he said she was a witch. And then right. by the time they were doing the trial, he was like, everyone are witches. Exactly. Now, I am not a mental health professional, but that sounds a lot like what is stereotyped in the popular parlance. And I apologize to anybody if this is the wrong parlance as paranoid schizophrenia. Right. Well, and the gentleman in question was sentenced to uh, basically a lunatic asylum and yeah. basically spent the rest of his life there. But what happens is, is during the investigation of the murder, when this comes back up, this brings up the concept of witchcraft. Now, this is the part that was actually really surprising to me. So we talked about Margaret Murray, the archaeologist, and how – and by the way, when I said that she – her stuff tied back to the Paleolithic, you may know the famous the, – the Troy – and I – oh, God, I'm so bad with the French – but the Troy Frere uh, cavern with the depiction of the sorcerer, the, the sorcerer that's the, the – The sorcerer the one, with the giant direction? No. Well, he may have that, but he's the one that looks like he's a he's a he's like a half man, half oh, deer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which, by the way, if you look at the actual like photos and early drawings, a lot of that seems less than um, supportable that this thing looks like a deer. Uh, Abruel, the the guy who who studied that, who was kind of like the master of Paleolithic like cave art at the time, after he read Murray's book and was like, "Oh, this must be the horned god." 
Uh-huh. That's why it gets end up getting called, or at least to some degree, the sorcerer. He basically reinterpreted it as this must be the horn god. Because Murray had argued that what gets called the devil later is actually this ancient pagan horned god. Gotcha. That she ties into the notion of Karunos, this relatively minor figure mentioned in Roman texts and in a few sculptures. And there's a horned figure on the uh, on a couple of sculptures, including very famously the Gundestrup cauldron, the silver cauldron from northern Europe. So the, it, these are all very famous things. Are, 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 we can link to them, and I, I suspect a lot of our listeners are familiar with them. But um, so the thing that fascinated me was – so she writes this in the 20s. And we'll talk about maybe some of the stuff this gets picked up as. The 1930s, this stuff starts to really percolate into the mainstream. And she, again, she's not the only one writing about it. Now, when I say the satanic panic, you've heard that phrase. Right. That's what went through during the 80s with all of the weird witchcraft, you know, child molestation. I would say the 70s and 80s. But yes, in the United States. Right. And I tie that into sort of changes in American politics and religiosity, blah, 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 blah. Right, right, right. It's a well-known phenomenon. Except... That happened in Britain a little in the 30s and then in a big way in the 1950s into the early 1960s. And it was identical. Well, not identical. It was very similar. Like there were the elements of supposed abuse and the, all of that. There was more of an emphasis on luring like gentlemen and luring like like men with uh, with good standing into like orgy and sex parties and whatnot amongst these occultists and then filming it and blackmailing them and creating like a network. So kind of like the stuff you hear people make up about the Masons was sort of part of this. I don't know but, if I've ever heard of people being blackmailed with sex tapes by the Masons, but you not, know, I haven't heard everything yet. No, not that, but like the idea that like once they're in place, like they form like a power elite, you know, like, yes. oh, the ch- you know, and they, they'll let you off. They, you know, they'll they'll scratch these others back. So that was kind of what was the, the argument that was happening. Britain went through this decades earlier than we did. And it was like a massive tabloid kind of thing. Well, I mean, if you line that up, if you have that ending around the 60s and you have our if you have America's satanic panic starting in the 70s, I mean, it kind of makes sense. It just hopped well, the pond. I actually have another hypothesis on this. So one of the major hypotheses for why there's the massive outbreak of witchcraft freak out in New England when there is in the 1690s. Now, there was witchcraft accusations in England, New England before and after that. Right. But the Salem, it's not just Salem, but Salem's what we're talking Salem's about. Salem's the famous one. Yeah, everybody it's, knows it's the, that It's is. the core, right. There, this has been hypothesized by quite a few people that this was sort of people losing their minds after King Philip's War. This kind of brutal, nobody really did well in it, even though one side won a lot. There were a lot of casualties, and it was kind of the thought that they had lost, in a sense. King Philip's War against various native groups uh, versus the English colonists. And so there was this idea that the Salem witch trial was kind of this uh, – these trials was sort of this kind of, well, who's to blame? You know, we just had this big loss. And witchcraft, when we talk about witchcraft and anthropology, it's usually bad things happen. My cow died. I got sick. We lost the war. Who do we blame? Yeah, who witchcraft blame? is typically when – for people who don't know, witchcraft is a term that is used by anthropologists to describe bad magic being used in yeah. a group. That it's, it's interchangeable with sorcery. Um, you'll see that a lot more now than you will yeah. see witchcraft. But it's the same concept that it's a generic term that's being applied to general traits as they pop up across cultures. And it's really more about accusations. I mean, you know, today there are people like, I'm a witch, I'm this, and, and we'll get right, back to that. Right, but that's, the, you know, that's new. That's different. That's something else. Yeah. Yeah. This is more something bad happened. Oh, a witch must have done it. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, we are using that term, we as anthropologists and as researchers are using that as a blanket term. It, right. there, if you go to one of these cultures and you say, this bad thing happened, what was it? They will have their own terms for the bad thing and for the person who is the, it, the caster of said spell. But it may often be not der- terribly different than the idea of, of sort of witchcraft in that regard. Right, so no, it, no, the idea is – I'm saying the idea is the same. It's just right. the term itself yeah. is – we have a generic term. We use uh, witchcraft and sorcery. Right. That individual culture will have a different word oh, yeah. for it. Yeah, there's different – there's all these yeah, – Concepts the, the, are – com- these... the concept, the idea is completely the same. That's yeah. why we can use the blanket term. Anyway. So in the, six, in the 1690s, that's after this failed war, uh, colonial war. 1950s Britain, not only just while they won World War II, they were suffering massively economically. Right. They also lost pretty much all their colonies. United States, after, say, 1973, 
just lost what they considered their first great military loss, the Vietnam War, and it tore up the social fabric of the country. I don't think that those three are a coincidence. I, I think this idea that if you lose a war, and especially this kind of like war against an other, this outsider, and you lose like these kind of colonial wars, you start to look, well, how, do, how could that possibly be? How could we be beaten by these people? Or yeah, how could we suffer at the hands of these people? And that's like, oh, oh, and it must be in league with something larger, and including corrupt people in your own society. So I, I think that's what's going on with the timing, with the, uh, the satanic panic sort of equivalent in Britain. And it's not quite the same, but it's actually very, very similar. Like you read Fabian and most of the things you read, because he starts to write about it in his books. He talks about how in the 1930s, well, everybody knew there were all these underground witch cults and blah, 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 blah. And in fact, they're all centered in like a couple of neighborhoods. And one's Bloomsbury, like right around the British Museum. There's these occult bookstores. If you go into their basements and there's lectures, uh, and you, you'll get sucked into this. And I remember reading this like right around the time I went and did exactly that during during a trip to London. I'm like, oh. I may be in some peril, but uh, which was kind, of, which was kind of awesome. Which is Jeff telling uh, us that he got kidnapped by a bunch of uh, by a Wiccan coven and is now being blackmailed. Gotcha. Shh, never, <laughs> ne- never you mind. Uh, but uh, so so that's kind of the environment that this is beginning to resurface the Charles Walton murder. So when this when 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 Ms. Pullinger brings this idea of like, oh, I remember. And in fact, you read in the testimony, she remembered her 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 grandmother being stabbed by the pitchfork. She didn't know about the witchcraft stuff. And then you read like the, the cops and they're like, we don't want to tell her that's why the guy did it. But that's why the guy did it, because he because he was crazy and thought she was a witch. It, yeah, but he thought a lot of people were witches. Actually. Right. So in 1950, five years after the murder, these things start to get tied into all this witchcraft stuff. And um, we'll get back to why we're bringing this up in this in this discussion in a moment with Murray. This was not the only uh, murder in that area. There's, a, there's another one also during World War II. I want to say in 1943, the sort of infamous who put Bella in the witch elm. Uh, a relatively young woman was found like stuffed in a witch elm, a W-Y-C-H elm. It's actually the name of an elm tree. Huh. Uh, and she was clearly murdered. And after this was made public in 1943, weird graffiti started showing up everywhere. Who put Bella in the witch elm? There's no good evidence that Murray looked into that murder, but you'll find that on the internet. You'll find them yes, linked together. Um, and I'm not saying she couldn't have. It may She may well have, but there's no good evidence that she did. Robert McCormick in the 1960s wrote that she looked into it. Robert McCormick, he also wrote a lot about Jack the Ripper and whatnot. He is routinely kind of looked at as somebody whose his stuff was often not terribly accurate. And there's definitely stuff in the book that he wrote on this topic that I don't believe. It's kind of like the guy who writes all of the Killing Whoever books, whose name shall not be named. Yes. Um, where well, he I just kind he of would... conveniently makes history up so that it would support his crazy book well, ideas. I haven't read those. I but... don't recommend it. Yeah. So I can't really speak to that. But so what happens is, is that there's actually this big science meeting for like all different kinds of sciences in Birmingham in the fall or the late, I can't remember if it's late summer, early fall. I think it's late summer, like August, uh, 1950. And Murray goes to represent the Folklore Society and represent archaeology. And so she basically takes advantage of this and she poses as kind of like an avocational artist at the age of 87 and starts striking up conversations about the murder and about witches. And then she starts talking about it in the national press. Uh, and, and I've been able to find a number of press articles. I found there are some online, but I actually went and found an a interview that or, or a reprint not six years later in a, uh, a tabloid called Reveille that uh, talks about this, that talks about – that's part of their Satanic Panic series. It's a three-part series on gray magic um, that, that talks about – I know. I know. It's awesome. Uh, that pretty much says this, but then I found articles uh, from 1950. So she was clearly talking to the press, you know, the professor, the archaeologist who's in search of the witches. And she actually wasn't interested in solving the murder. She was just hoping that she would find a live coven of witches. Interesting to know. Well, let's yeah. get a break real quick. And when we come back, let's wrap up what uh, Murray found.
Kim Biddulph explores the books set in our prehistoric past on Prehistories, an innovative and creative show. Kim investigates the archaeology and anthropology behind your favorite stories by bringing on guests that are experts in the field and that can speak to the actual story behind the story. Check out the show at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash prehistories. Now let's get back to the show. And we are back, and we're still talking about Margaret Murray and her investigation into uh, what she thought was a witch cult murder. Into murder. Murder, most foul. So, um, what did she find? Well, I mean, she didn't find witches. Or maybe she thought she did. I don't know. She gave a number of interviews where she's like, maybe the Italians did it, but, you know, she made some reason. But she also tried to, like, argue that because of the date because it happens on february 14th so maybe piss somebody off on valentine's day i well, don't it was, know it was february it's specifically it was saint valentine's day not right not february 14th as much as it was the saint's day well I think and it, was. it also overlapped ash wednesday well but I, what she did then though is she's like but if you like change the calendar from gregorian to julian it puts it on the second it puts it on the 2nd of February, and that we know as Groundhog Day, of course. Right. But that is actually like a significant kind of old holiday known by a number of names. Like I think one is Condomas and another one is Imbolc. Yeah. And so she tries to sort of shove this into – I mean this feels like a conspiracy theory, which it was. But she tries to shove this <laughs> it into – feels that way because it is one. <laughs> Yeah, into that. And, and I, again, she's 87 at this point, and she's written about this. And also, it's in the air. Uh, and, and she starts to get famous at this point. So she writes her book in 1921, her first one, and it initially does well. And then people are like, eh, this doesn't seem terribly accurate, but they just kind of let it go. And she goes into sort of obscurity in the 30s and the 40s, especially when she starts talking about the royal family being, you know, an ancient pagan sect and blah, blah, blah. Right. But after 1951, with the revocation of the Witchcraft Act that criminalized witchcraft, which then opens the way for Wicca with Gerald Gardner, which we were talking about earlier. Right. Uh, who Now, we were talking that he went into the New Forest and he supposedly finds this coven. Gerald Gardner talks about finding this coven of, of witches and all of that. Turns out that almost certainly they probably knew her book. Like she probably was influencing them. So in the 1950s, Gardner is kind of like, doing what we call bricolage, like taking pieces and bits. And while there are people that very much believe in the old religion today, I would I would suspect that even most uh, neo-pagans and even specifically so as Wiccans realize that a lot of the history here is not perfect and that there are indeed ancient or, or, or very old folk traditions. Just tying into something that's from the Pleistocene is not necessarily easy to do. Well, I don't I, – I know several people who do practice and I don't think anybody takes this literally as much as – that's why you have so many people on so many different paths. Yeah. It's because, you know, they choose a, a, a pathion or a specific god or goddess to follow yeah. and try to find out as much as they can about that one entity or that one right. group. So. And that level and that level of freedom is, is actually one of the hallmarks uh, of neo right. I, I was talking to one of my students today about this, and they have a relative that – and they were, she was talking up a storm about this. So, yeah, absolutely. And we're going to probably link to uh, in the show notes to a BBC documentary yes. about about Gerald Gardner. It's a good, it's a good one. I liked it. it. It is. It's short. It's short. It's a half hour. It's really good. And it's hosted by Ronald Hutton. Yes. Now, I don't think Ronald Hutton, he's, he's a very famous historian who works on this stuff. He's really charismatic. He has an interesting uh, style. Uh, he does, he's an interesting looking person, yes. He is, but in a cool way. Yeah. And uh, I'd love to meet him. I did not get a chance to last year. He very much engages with the neo-pagan community. I don't think he's ever open said what his exact spirituality is but it's he's very sympathetic but in his triumph of the moon which is often considered one of the definitive histories if not the definitive history of the origins of the neopaganism he is very very clear this is all quite recent it's tying into deeper ideas and tying into deeper urgings but gerald gardner was taking a lot of stuff from the 20 i mean the he very much points out hutton does the uh i, I always mispronounce this but the athame the 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 the, the sort athame. of curly, there's i've i that's how i always said it but recently i've, I've heard it as uh athame or uh hmm. yeah but 
Literally, if you put in Athame into Google, the next thing that shows up, like his next Google search is Athame pronunciation. So there's a lot of confusion out there. Nice. I've, I said Athame for a long time, but I think that's maybe not accurate. He probably kind of made that up to some degree, Gerald Gardner did, because he really liked Chris Knives from the part of the indies that he was in, mm. like the, the curly Chris Knives. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of bricolage, a lot of mixing and matching things that makes sense, which is not surprising. That's how these things happen. Right. The, the environment that Murray is in is starting to be really full of this after 1951. Uh, a highly recommended movie, by the way, and there's a there's a sort of decent copy on YouTube, Vimeo, and you can get it on DVD. It's either called Night of the Demon or Curse of the Demon. It's an adaptation of an M.R. James story, uh, Montague Rhodes James, called Casting the Runes, and it's an excellent movie. I think uh, that one then is Night of the Demon. Well, like it was given two different names. Ah, gotcha. Yeah, like it's like in, when they when they showed it in the U.S., it had a slightly different cut and a different name. Gotcha. Kind of like what we did with Five Million Years to Earth versus Quater Mass in the Pit. Right. Um, and while it's a it's a a adaptation of an M.R. James story, there's a lot of Murray in there. There's a lot of Gerald Gardner in there. There's more than a touch of Aleister Crowley in there. Like the main villain is very much modeled in this version off of Aleister Crowley. And it opens – it literally opens on – in case you've forgotten, this is Archaeological Fantasies. (laughs) The movie literally opens on Stonehenge. Yeah. And and there's a lot of that kind of woven in. And in fact, they got Margaret Murray – to do kind of like you know when they like movies they'll have these kind of like uh special press things where they'll they'll do stuff and have like people talk and you know like uh get them all at a panel and and you know they all pal around and whatnot they actually got margaret murray to do this that's funny when she's in like she's in her 90s yeah and they get the star if you watch this movie by the way it's the main character he's a very like famous actor at that time american actor dana andrews his (laughs) character is an asshole yes he is and and like the 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 main the i don't know if she's supposed to be a love interest but the main female character repeatedly is like doesn't literally say you're an asshole but says it in so many words and he's a skeptic but he's a he's a prick about it yeah and Dana Andrews apparently was kind of like that on the set. He was apparently drunk quite a bit. So he meets like the 90-year-old, very famous archaeologist, trained the first professional generation of Egyptologists, and like is drunk and like kisses her on the cheek and goes – and there's a picture of this and it's like, you old son of a witch. Yeah, and it's like, oh god, this is just like this is sixty years later, and I'm like feeling the cringe on me now. But but this is her time. Like there's like a lot of these these films. The Quater Mass and the Pit plays a lot of this, and that was first in the 1950s as well. Right. That we talked about in an earlier podcast. So it makes sense to some degree that these sorts of things are happening. So she goes up there. She doesn't find her witches. I don't know if she looked into the Bella and the Witch Elm thing. It wouldn't. I wouldn't put it past her, but there's just not any evidence of it. She doesn't mention it in any of the news articles that she does, but those have been glommed together. And you can find that on like you know ridiculous websites, but like you'll find that on like real news articles about all of this, like around this time of year, around Halloween time. You know, like oh, three spooky stories. You know that that sort of thing. Right. So. Um, she didn't find her witches. She's actually not in the Scotland Yard files, which I find really suspicious, actually. Uh, I'm not saying there are other ones, but but that just strikes me as odd because they were reopened in 1950 for this witchcraft stuff. And while I was there, by the way, I ended up finding a whole other file on when the British government hired an anthropologist to like crack witchcraft in, in their African colonies at the same time, which was kind of amazing. Wow. Yeah. But, uh, but anyway, the murder thing is kind of a larger illustration of – how this had become really popular as part of this larger sort of, again, kind of panic about the idea of this of this hidden religion. Uh, I think the thing with Murray is she influences so many things. So we've talked about how she influences Wicca itself. Like she wrote the foreword for, for Gerald Gardner. And this idea becomes – in fact, basically what happens is, is that once people start to take hold of it in the 60s, only then do historians finally take the idea seriously enough to say it's not true. So prior to the 1960s, people were just like, eh, whatever. And so what she argued was is that this was a real religious group, but that, you know, all of the things that seemed supernatural were not supernatural. So when they talk about the quote unquote the black man, the devil that would show up in 16th and 17th century uh, Sabbaths, 
she argues, oh, it must have been one of the celebrants wearing a mask. And she would kept using cross-cultural comparisons. And when they talk about the devil's cold penis, you know, and having sex with the devil. I don't, I don't think we can use that word on this podcast. I think we were already too, it's too far too late for that. <laughs> when they talk about like, oh, that he had his demonic seed and how he was cold and icy to the touch. She literally argues, oh, that must have been a prosthetic. Yeah, so since we've gotten this far in the conversation, it, it, yeah. I feel like it's important that we, and you are doing it right now, but I feel like it's important we put this bluntly. Margaret Murray did not believe herself in magic. She Oh, oh did she finally not, end up doing that? That's, that's not true. She infamously, now whether she really believed, she apparently at one point used a saucepan to cast a spell against a colleague that had done her wrong i've heard about that but i don't know if that like that one's one of those urban myth kind of things people that know her knew her talk about it apparently yeah but i mean if you were the witchcraft person and somebody ticked you off wouldn't you do something to freak them out too oh yeah yeah i mean so it's like that kind of a thing like but her her original publications on the topic of witchcraft across cultures was she did not believe that the witch cult that she put it was supernatural but she was very interested in the occult supernatural so she wrote her autobiography her autobiography is amazingly named she she was born in 1863 she dies in 1963 published in 1963 is her autobiography my first 100 years Right. Which is kind of awesome. And she has one chapter on archaeology in there, even though it was, you know, her career. She has one chapter on the occult. And she has this fantastic quote in there. And I'd have to find it. But uh, basically where she says that every archaeologist she knows uh, has had some kind of either personal or they know somebody who's had some kind of weird occult experience. And I I would say that's a true statement. I would say... Even the people, even the people I have worked with who are staunch atheists have had some freaky story that they will tell you about after you put enough beers in them. Here it is. I find that all good archaeologists are expected to have had at least one occult experience, either personal or of somebody that he knows. And yeah. that is that is from her autobiography. And yeah, there's, there's probably some truth to that. And of course, we've talked about this, especially when I've been on, because it's kind of on my hobby horses numerous times, that I think that that's sort of the cultural reading of archaeology and has been, frankly, from the beginning. And it's yeah, but you basis. can't. I mean, you used to do field work, right? Oh, yeah, still do. Yeah. So, I mean, you've been in some and you've done like other uh, other uh, country field work. So you've you've gotten to see some really cool stuff. You can't tell me that you haven't had some weird, for lack of a better word, spooky encounter while oh. you're crawling around somewhere. And I mean, logically, after the fact, you're like, oh, it must have been a squirrel, you know, but at the oh, time, there's, there's all kinds of weird, karmic, dark things yeah, exactly. that I'm not talking about. I also know people that have – I knew somebody was working in Belize and she told me about a ghost light that she saw at the camp. Right. I mean uh, I've had a professor had... that had – I mean and she's still non-religious but you know she was studying a, a culture group of people and she got bit by a dog and got – she was – she caught no illness from this dog but she got physically ill – and the witch doctor came and said, well, that's because the dog has bitten your spirit. And, you know, he, he put her through this whole ritual and she had to bathe in water with lime and mint leaves. And, uh-huh. and she's like, yeah. And afterwards I felt fine. I knew, I knew you know? somebody, I knew somebody that had a very bad thing happen to them and they went through Olympiasa, a, a sort of in, indigenous themed kind of cleansing ritual yeah. in, in Central America. You mentioned the dog thing. Margaret Murray, she got bit by a dog that people were concerned were rabbits. So she actually was blessed by the Copts, uh, sort of traditional Egyptian mm-hmm. Christian community in Egypt. She went through a ritual against that. Yep. And so, no, no. So absolutely. But she did. So she believed in things that we would call occult and paranormal, but she tried to give them non-supernatural, but not, but not what we would consider scientific. So like, for example, we've talked about the stone tape theory, right? She didn't talk about that. She, but she had the same idea about moisture. So she was wondering if that was why ghosts were so prevalent in like the Gothic American South and in the British Isles, because they've got humid environments and that you had some kind of unknown energy that recorded spectral type things and they were more likely to be replayed in that environment. 
Now that's not supernatural. I like that theory better. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting actually. It's not supernatural, but that ain't physics either. No, no. Exactly. But I'm and, not and expecting physics from a archaeologist. No, but like that was, I mean, that and that's the thing. Like I, I, we would today say that she believed in a number of things that are considered paranormal, right? But not that she believed in like spirits or ghosts in the sort of most spiritual sense. She talks quite a bit about this in in her autobiography, so it's actually kind of fascinating. And considering um, the time at which she was in her, the height of her practice. I don't think her mentality of the situation was no, these that not, key. No, I mean, we've talked about sort of the history of, of, of these kinds of things on here and kind of the rise of parapsychology. And all these. Right. No, she, she's kind of, again, I wouldn't say she's mainstream of her time. No. But it's not as unusual as it may sound. Now, the other, the other strand, and this, of course, is one of my big hobby horses, but she inspires Wicca in a number of ways. I mean, I think it was going to happen regardless, but she's a major inspiration on it. She also inspires one, Howard Phillips Lovecraft. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yes. We have to bring back – we have to bring well, in Lovecraft. not only that, I think it's actually one of the most important inspirations. And a number of people have written about this. Robert Waugh has written about this recently. Scott Poole's written about this. But I've done my own research on this, and I, I make a big deal about this in the, in the book I'm going to have coming out in about a year. Um, where and this is not a secret he reads her book in what appears to be sometime in 1923 and very famously lovecraft at one point said i have my poe stories and i have my these stories where are my lovecraft stories the things we call his lovecraft stories his quote-unquote cthulhu mythos stories Mm -hmm. pretty much start appearing after he reads murray and what he does is he had his thing called the commonplace book, which is kind of like his notebook of ideas. And we can start to see Murray inspiring. Now, he name drops her. Like you read The Call of Cthulhu. You read all these stories. Her book is mentioned in there by name. Like Margaret Murray is the witch cult in Western Europe. Hey, man, um, when something inspires you, you got to keep note of it. I mean, he did it with other books, but he believed it entirely. Like there are pages and pages and pages of letters to Robert E. Howard where Lovecraft is just holding court about how it's all true. This is one – this was – he believed a lot of other things that we don't believe. They like race and all that. But in terms of things that are like sort of we really look at pseudoscience, this was his one – Now, this is not H.P. Lovecraft believing that magic is real. Not magic, but the idea of basically what what, what Murray was saying. He's like everything the, the idea says, of a proto religion, a proto religion that's kind of the original religion. And and by the way, if we have not made this clear, what Murray was using, she was using like old witch trial documents that we very much today are like these people were having their fingers pulled off. They would say anything. Exactly. And she's very much again kind of cherry picking how she's creating the witch cult out of this. Lovecraft reads this. And immediately the idea of an ancient religion that's global, Mm -hmm. that's got cults everywhere, starts popping up left, right, and center. He had little bits of this. Well, and it's highly influenced with the Egyptian lore and uh, iconography and – yeah. So, well, her well, her initial stuff wasn't. Her initial stuff didn't play with that. Not a lot. her stuff, but his stuff. Right. Oh yeah. Also, the stuff we talked about the fairies on on our on our monster talk coat uh, uh, crossover. That's all in there too. Pretty much, you can make Mac Ritchie. She's like, oh, the witches learn the ancient religion from these ancient people that are now called fairies. Like this is all coming together. And so, honestly, I think you can largely argue the Cthulhu cult is basically Murray's witch cult. In fact, he literally says in the story, oh, there's a witch cult, but the Cthulhu cult's entirely different. (laughs) He literally says that, but in his commonplace book, the sort of story notes that become the Cthulhu cult, he calls it the witch cult. Like the witch cult centered on an ancient alien city in an island in the Pacific. And I'm like, okay, there we are. That's it. That, that's proof positive. So – and now as we've talked about with me and with Jason Colavito and others, that's the origin of ancient aliens. So honestly, you could – well, not the only origin but a major one. You could kind of argue that both Wicca and ancient aliens to some degree owe a lot of what they are to Margaret Murray's sort of trying to on the one hand mix sort of ancient or, or, or old style traditional lore – with the notion of deep time and the notion of scientific archaeology. And that's a pretty big... I think you're seven degrees of baking the whole ancient aliens part of that, but... Maybe maybe a little, maybe a little. I can can follow that thread, but by the time... I I don't want to give her too much credit for ancient aliens. Well, I mean, not directly, because that also comes out of theosophy. It's part of the larger thing, but I would say this. Lovecraft would not have created – I don't think he would have created his Cthulhu mythos. I'll the way totally he give you Lovecraft. Yeah, and he certainly wouldn't have written The Call of Cthulhu. And we've had Colavito on with others. Ancient aliens probably would have emerged in some form, 
But the form it emerges in, when it emerges, and how it emerges, and it's we know it's documented uh, influences are Lovecraft. Right, right, and, right. And the most important of his stories is The Call of Cthulhu. And I, I would argue The Call of Cthulhu doesn't exist without Murray. Fair enough. And, and I agree with you there, but I don't know. My point is it's not a direct line. No, but I think it's a causal one. Yes, I will agree with you totally there. Yeah. But so and th- and that's the thing. I don't want to take away from her archaeology. I don't want to take away from her other stuff. And that's why I keep saying this is of her time. This is sort of what some people were doing at her time. Yeah. Like, and that's my thing. Like that she I, also went undercover and investigated witch murders. Yeah, that, that was really cool. I feel like the weird stuff that she obviously was into, I think, is more um, her being a product of her time yeah. than you know her imagination running away with her because things things weren't well, think, different it, but it was more acceptable at that point to have a little bit of sensationalism in your well, research and such well now we, we are nearly done yeah I, yeah her, her research was not actually super sensational no. it was what people made of it right i i would say some of it running away from her is probably part of the equation but there were a lot of other people doing the same sort of thing. And the fact that you can readers and go, oh, this is clearly like Frasier. Right. Frasier was a well-respected, although at that time beginning to be old, creaky, old-fashioned kind of person. And this is just like Charles Leland, who also probably, frankly, made up some of it. And I, even more than Murray didn't make up. She just misinterpreted, I would argue. Right. And I, and, and I want people to know yeah. on, uh, as we're going out, I want people to understand that Margaret Murray was respected for the time. And the occult stuff was only part of her research. She she was highly influential in the fields of ethnography and, and in Egyptology, and she she represents a long line, and this is very personal to me, she represents a long line of very successful women right. in the field of archaeology who basically clawed their way to the top. I mean, we talk and, about and- Flinders Petrie, but we would not have had him if it wasn't for Amelia Edwards. Who basically oh, yes. nursed yeah, him into the position that he his was chair. in? Yeah, doubt his chair. Right, yeah. and then through that, I mean, we owe a lot to Petrie because he was not afraid to take women on oh, and yeah. take them out into the field. And his wife, uh, Linda Dorian, Jonah Eccleston, and uh, and uh, Margaret Murray, and several other very influential women who came out of that time period. So. As much as we are pointing out the eccentricities of Margaret Murray, I do want people to understand yeah. she was a legitimate researcher. She did legitimate work. And- Absolutely. You read you read her autobiography and she talks about everything you just described and the field conditions. My favorite uh, moment is where they're in Egypt. They're doing this work and they need to go check on something. And they're worried that bandits are going to, yes. to steal something. I love and that story. So you want to tell it? If it's the one I'm thinking of, like uh, it's it's her and Flinder Petrie's wife Hilda, and I forget, and I think Linda, uh, Lena Dorian Eccleston. Yeah, they're worried about the bandits. And so they're going to go check on the stuff. And so they all join hands and yep. they start singing and dancing at the top of their lungs while they walk out to this area because yeah it's it's in the middle of the night and they're they're, skipping along the sand dunes hand in hand and it freaks the crap out of all of the men in the area and so none of them would go up and bother them because they they didn't want to get mixed up with the crazy women but all three of these women um while they were working for petrie were in charge of their own crews yes and so they were respected somewhat at least by the men that they were working that were working under them so well um, we've talked about the professionalization of archaeology and that's of course one i think very much the unfortunate things and you know there was this recent study showing the exact same thing in like it and computer fields that you go back to the 60s and 70s there were tons of women everywhere and then it starts to get corporatized and all of a sudden the boom dropped and they start getting like harassed and driven out the same thing kind of happens archaeology like early on you go to that you see like they're all over the place and then archaeology kind of starts professionalized and it becomes in fact the old boys network well and it's not to say that the professional that the women weren't being professional some of the women were groundbreaking in the professionalism oh, right um it's just you know as soon as something becomes cool all the guys come and take it over and then push exactly. all the women out exactly so not to be mean or anything you can all send no, your hate mail to me it's okay i can i'm a big girl I can this take is it. this is ridiculously well documented historical fact. yeah really it is you have a final thought about that i've been interrupting you on <laughs> no not really no i mean we, we we're, we're kind of hitting it and well, basically, the thing I was going to say, but we, we've kind of covered it, is that, you know, her, her work on the Osiron, all these other things, those are great. But honestly, I think the most important was, as you said, the, the groundbreaking of how these things are done and by who these things are done, these 
professional things. We bring it up with the witches. It's that season. I mean, we know that I always add the weird. And this is, of course, to some degree, the, the, the topic of this podcast. But don't want that to, of course, be the only thing that we talk about with her. And it hasn't been. I think we have we have done that as well. Yeah. I don't, I don't have a problem, I suppose, talking about the, the weird things that she did. I mean, she did. They were. Uh, that's what it was. I just don't want people to walk away thinking that she was this crazy Margaret Murray. No, no. Because we got other crazy people we can talk about. Yeah. Well, Jeb, thank you very much. That was very informative. And, I mean, anytime we can talk about witch murders, it's always going to be at least injury. Right, exactly. you got to steeple your fingers while you say it. Uh, I pre- I pre- just assume I'm steepling my fingers at all times on the show. I kind of do. I kind of yeah. figure if you're not steepling your fingers, you've got like that, you got that academic beer hand thing going on. Yeah, it's either it's either that or, or a cider in hand. So, you know, <laughs> whichever. Well, Deb, thank you very much, and we will talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye. Roundhouses and Romans, human evolution makes us smile. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember to rate and like us wherever you listen. Be sure to comment on this episode and share us with your friends. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com or leave a comment on the show page. Show notes and downloads can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can also follow the blog at archiefantasies.com and follow us on Twitter at archiefantasies. Music was provided by Archaeosuit Productions. This show is part of the Archaeology Podcast Network and is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. Thanks again for listening. We don't do dinosaurs! See? Are you happy? Do you get it now? Do you get it? Honestly. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.